0: Welcome to Beyond Religion. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. My guest today is Rabbi Matthew Reamer. He became my friend when he was living here in New Orleans for three years as rabbi of Temple Sinai, just catty corner to the church that I pastor. We got to work together along with our pal Jay Hogwood, who's a pastor about a mile away, all on the same street Three really magical years of collaboration and friendship and some really great interfaith congregational studies that we got to do together. Formally, Matt is a graduate of Vassar College. He was ordained in 2007 by Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. He has served as a rabbi to congregations in California, New York, where he lives now, New Jersey, where he works now, and New Orleans, where I met him. One of the fun things about interviewing your friends is reading their bios. Not only did I not know he once worked for the New York Philharmonic, I do not ever remember him talking about playing flag football for the Israeli national team when he was there living and traveling throughout the country. We didn't get into that too extensively. Instead, we talk about the similarities between church engagement trends and synagogue engagement trends, particularly post-pandemic. It's one thing for a progressive Christian pastor to imagine a posture beyond religion. But how does that conversation sound in Reformed Judaism? We consider these questions and a whole lot more on today's episode of Beyond Religion. Yeah, I just want to talk and catch up.
1: Yeah, I know. But isn't that kind of what we do anyway?
0: I know. It is. It is. And I wish that we were at Wake and Bacon. And I wish that Jay was with us. Yeah. You are the first person of my first season to not be from the American South. And I'm very excited about that because I'm getting lots of comparisons about my accent to everyone else's accent.
1: So do you, if you need me, if you need me to start talking like I'm from where I'm part of the country, let me know because I can bring it. If I need to bring it, I'll bring it.
0: What's funny is the more Southern they sound, the more people will text me and say, oh, that really sounds just like you. And I think, oh, I know that Southern, but then why is that a bad thing? So anyway, welcome from above the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> It's good to see you, and it's good it's to- so good to see you. Yeah, just spend a little time together today. Yeah, I have lots of now questions, but I want to start more at the beginning because I don't really remember getting to know you, so I forget a lot of those getting to know you questions. Are you from New Jersey originally? Is that right?
1: I'm from New Jersey. Most of my adult life has been in New York City, but. From New Jersey, from a stereotypical northeast suburb. Bon Jovi? I wasn't so into Bon Jovi, but I was into Bon Jovi enough that I certainly knew him before you did, because he was local, just like Bruce Springsteen and others.
0: I mean, is that girl from Stranger Things. That's a very big deal. What's that? Bon Jovi's kid is marrying the girl from Stranger Things.
1: I don't think I knew that.
0: One who plays Eleven. I can't think of what her name is.
1: Oh, yeah. The Bobby, Billy Bobby, Bobby. Bobby. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. That's like a celebration of your people right there, Matt.
1: Yes, for sure. And so West Orange, I would say, growing up in in the late 70s, early 80s, I just gave it away so you can do the math on your own. A third Jewish, a third Italian, a third African-American. And that's what West Orange was. West Orange is essentially a suburb of Newark, New Jersey. That's my early days. And did
0: you grow up in an observant Jewish household?
1: No, definitely not. We grew up members of a synagogue, which many families in northern New Jersey were.
0: I just realized I don't have my microphone, and so I don't know where any of those first questions will go. But we're just going to roll with it.
1: Let's rock and roll. Let's keep going. I like that microphone. That looks fancy.
0: Yeah, it's the the Yeti yeah. Blue Podcaster mic, but Yeah, I like it. It was way off to the side, so apologies if the sound quality up front was crap.
1: No problem, and I like the plug. Maybe Yeti will send you some new devices. Maybe they will. Yeah, we belong to a synagogue, but for sure we were not observant. And in fact, I saw your title of the Ish. And I think that was a large part of who we were. Certainly, we identified and continue to identify as a Jewish family, but we did not go to synagogue regularly. We did not light Shabbat candles regularly. My brother and sister and I we played a lot of sports, and those were often on the weekends. Yep. But we were in synagogue. We were in temple for the high holidays. We had seder for Pesach for Passover. A lot of family gatherings. And without sounding too stereotypical, all of our gatherings included bagels and locks and the works, which we took very seriously.
0: So, what's the arc from growing up in the outskirts of Newark, New Jersey, in this diverse community and in a not particularly observant Jewish family to being a rabbi?
1: It's, I'll try and give you the short version just for the purposes of brevity. Um, but it's actually an interesting story. Growing up, I went to religious school. I think it was once or twice. I think it was twice a week. I often missed the weekend session because of sports. I was a soccer player. But when I was in school, in religious school, I was often kicked out. I was a really very bad student.
0: But what do you uh, by bad, like cracking jokes and disrupting?
1: For sure, cracking jokes and disrupting. I had a teacher who had a hearing aid. Gosh, this is really terrible. But I had a hearing, I had a teacher who had a hearing aid, and so I convinced a couple of friends to, and so he would turn his hearing aid up, and then we'd start yelling, and oh, he would,
0: man. how old were yeah. you?
1: I was in my 20, no, I don't know, I was <laughs> seven, eight, nine, okay. something like that. So I would get kicked out of class a lot and I spent a lot of time with the director of the school and she was awesome. She was down to earth. She was approachable. She was fun. She was funky. She was a little weird, all of which I vibed with. Yeah. And so fast forward a couple of decades, I graduated from Vassar college and for reasons to this day, Liz, that I still don't know, why i decided to pack a bag and move to israel i had never been there before i did not know i did not know any hebrew i had no idea what i was doing i didn't know the difference between a falafel and a shawarma absolutely nothing but i went and it was amazing i took graduate coursework at the hebrew university i sang in a professional choir i became a member of the israeli flag football team I traveled. It was just an incredible year. Again, picking up the pace a little bit. After a year, I came back, didn't have a job, living with my parents. And I distinctly remember I was at a red light in South Orange, New Jersey. And I hear a horn next to me. I look over and it's the religious school director. Wow. And she says, oh, Matt, I just heard I saw your mom at ShopRite. She says, you're back in town. That's so great how are you? We're at a red light. And I said, Oh, hi, Betsy. It was awesome. It was an amazing year. And she said, do me a favor. Tuesday night, can you come in? I want to talk to you about something Tuesday night. So I don't have anything going on. So I go in and I talk to her and she says, I want you to teach in my, in our Hebrew high school. And I want you to teach the kids. And I said, what are you talking about? Betsy, you remember me as a student. I was not, she said, you were awesome. I think you'd be great. You should teach. And I said, I don't even know what I would teach. I don't know how to teach. I don't know. Don't worry about that. I'll help you out. I'll figure it out. And then I said, I went back and forth. And she said, Matt, you have a younger sister, 10 years younger than you. What do you think would be important for her and her friends to know? And I said, gosh, that's a cool question. And I said, maybe I would like to teach a class about how to make responsible decisions and understanding the consequences of those decisions. And she said, great, that's what you're gonna teach. And I said, Betsy, I don't know how to, don't worry, I'm gonna give you all the material, that's what you're gonna teach. I said, I don't know how to teach a Jewish, don't worry about the Jewish stuff, I'll take care of all that, you just show up and teach that class. And I did, and it was amazing. And then I took a job at the New York Philharmonic, I took a job after that at a major law firm in the city, I took a job doing internet sales, and every single time before I was about to accept the job, I said, "Look, I want to work hard. I'll be here overtime, whatever you need for me." But every Tuesday, I need to be on the 4:46 train at a Penn Station to get to South Orange because I teach in my religious school at home, and it was it became really important to me. Yeah. And everywhere I went, my bosses said, "Great." That started some percolating and some wheels turning. And what I discovered is that I really love, and I think this is one of the things that brings you and I together, I really love thinking about how to be a good person in a world that's often very hard to be a good person. and complicated. And I love being with people during good times and bad times. I really do. And with the help of others and other conversations, I thought, gosh, I wonder if being a rabbi could could bring together all these parts that i take very seriously and i really like exploring
0: so then at this point you're late at that
1: point i am in my late 20s i've done these the jobs that i said i had been doing and i decided to go for it and applied rabbinical school and i got in to rabbinical school the year in 2002 and so 9 11 was still very fresh. Yeah, yeah. The second intifada in Israel was going on. It was a terribly dangerous time. And nonetheless, my first year of rabbinical school was in Israel, and it was really an incredible year. And that started my journey, of which I'm still on.
0: Would you ever describe that process or those moments of serendipity as calling the way that? Christian pastors talk about it?
1: There's plenty of Jewish, there's plenty of rabbis that use that term. It's not that it feels uncomfortable to me, that term, it just doesn't speak to me.
0: Yeah.
1: I think the calling part doesn't resonate with me as much as without sounding too sort of Star Trek-ish, just like really searching for meaning, Yeah. which maybe it's a distinction without a difference.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. I think I've really been wrestling with the language of calling for a while now, and finding it almost manipulative. And there can be a lot of assumptions that you've got to you've got to rise to this holy place of being called. And then there can also be assumptions about we can treat these people poorly because they're in another category, right? These are holy called people, or whatever the heck we church calls them. And when I look at my own story, I feel like I respond to nudging. And it it almost feels like a kid getting pushed off the end of the diving board. Come on! Until it's just untenable and I got to jump in. So that's, I'm just wondering about those metaphors, but also truly even where you feel it in your body. Anyway. Yeah, no,
1: when you're saying that, what was coming up for me is the story of the burning bush. Mm -hmm. And... There's this really beautiful midrash, this beautiful story that says the bush was actually always burning, but everybody was walking past it on their phones and trying to get from A to B and trying to catch the subway or the bus or miss a pothole on Playborn. On Whatever the case may be, everyone was just really busy. But whether Moses was actually looking for something or just viewed his days as, let me see what's out there. that the bush was always burning, and and he was just paying attention. While I love that story, and in fact, the crux of my senior dissertation in rabbinical school comes out of that story, it doesn't speak to me as a rabbi. I don't think I had a burning bush moment or an aha moment.
0: But I do love the question, what happens when you're paying attention? Yeah. That's a great question. And certainly one that I feel I'm in keenly right now. I stopped drinking last fall, last September. So I'm almost at eight months now. And I know I feel like I sound extremely defensive every time that I say, I don't really think this is about addiction and alcoholism for me. I really think it's about paying attention. Maybe with time, I might say yes to some of those other identifiers. But the big thing is, what does it really look like to just be here for all of it? those really awful feelings, <laughs> the really the discomfort in my body, the end of the day ah uh, that's in my shoulders. how do I learn to breathe through it and move through it and then what am I noticing about the world and about myself and maybe about the divine in the process? So yeah, I'm I dig the paying attention.
1: And I, that, I love that idea. I was just having a conversation with a buddy of mine, and he is of the thinking that nothing matters more than right now. Now, I like it. I think there's a sermon there. There's a book there. There's certainly a hashtag there. But with four kids yeah. and a full-time job and traffic and all of the things— All of the time. I'm not sure how realistic the idea of nothing matters more than right now, but I like it in theory.
0: Who is it that said plant trees under whose shade you know you will never sit? Something like that.
1: That's actually a Talmudic story, right? The guy that's planting the carob tree and somebody comes up to him and he says, why? What are you planting this tree for? You're wasting your time. You're never going to see the fruits of this tree. And he says, yeah, but my grandkids
0: will. That's right. So that's that's beautiful to me because it's that nothing is more in the moment, I think, than digging in the soil. Yes. <laughs> not One of the first times we hung out, I don't know that we can call it hanging out, but we did an event together was planting an olive tree. Oh, and gosh. olive Where, trees what? you can't or bush and you can't grow those in New Orleans. So it's very much not there. Uh, wasn't that in front of the archdiocese? It was was. Yes,
1: yes, I remember that. I, I remember it was, that.
0: A, uh, I don't know, some afternoon for peace. Yes. I don't know what it was. But, but yeah, An digging afternoon in the Afternoon for peace.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot and of we, afternoons for peace.
0: That's right. Just for about 55 minutes and no more. We're right. going to
1: hopefully, unless it's too hot.
0: <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. So right now matters, and you've got to have that future connection. Yeah, so being present, but also mindful, not being so lost in yourself that you're not mindful of others, generations, worlds to come, that those two things have to be together. Okay, jumping back into your story, I hear two different times in Israel. You were there right after Vassar, you're back home for a while, you're back there again. Did you do all of your seminary there?
1: No, just the first first? year. It's a required year, except for my class, without sounding too melodramatic, but... Buses were blowing up. There was a lot of, a lot of terrorism. And so our class was given the option to not go to Israel that first year. And a handful of us decided to go. So my first year was in Israel and then the rest four, it's a five-year program. The other four were here in New York.
0: How were you formed by that year? Not just being in Israel, but being in Israel in a time of real violence
1: There is a part of me, as is often the case, I think, going back to this idea of being present, your reality is you're present and that's always normal. Whatever you're doing is just what you're doing. And so there's a normalcy to it. This was at the time of potential missiles being fired from from Iraq. and I remember making a sealed room in my apartment. I remember picking up a gas mask and having to take a class as to how to put the gas mask on, being instructed to carry the gas mask with you at all times. There was something obviously very weird about all of that, but also very frightening about all of that. Unlike my first year in Israel, which was the first intifada, where I took buses all the time, I did not take, other than a cross-country bus from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, I did not take intra-buses. I didn't take Jerusalem city buses, Yeah, mostly because that was a promise that I made my parents. They asked yeah. me not to, and so I did that. Um, but how it shaped me, I think one of the things that I have always thought about during my rabbinate is the idea of the assumptions we make when it comes to, and I guess it links back to this idea of calling the assumptions we make of who is Jewish, who is a rabbi, who is a clergy, who can lead. We often make these assumptions of, wait, you're a rabbi. I knew you in high school. You really, you're a rabbi.
0: <laughs> you goofball.
1: Right. Not goofball was, would have been the best way to describe
0: I it. Know, I was being very nice.
1: Yes, thank you. PG. So I think that it allowed me to understand that a successful and thriving Judaism is just to focus on my area, allows all people to, to access it. Once we start imagining who should be this and who should be that and who fits into this and who doesn't fit into that, we're basically making a decision of what we want our tradition to look like, and that gets us into trouble.
0: And that, that leaves exactly where I ho- I hoped we were going to go. I feel like we're in this moment in American religious life. I'm sure that it's more than just in the U.S., but this is what I know. This is where I am. This is where I'm living and moving and working. That it almost feels like in religious life, there's a battle between tradition and imagination that... I feel in my work, if I am going to uphold tradition, then some perceive imagination and creativity and innovation are a threat to tradition. Whereas I, I think the best of the tradition is brought out through imagination and creativity and innovation. And then the essence is what lasts. But that also means that some parts of tradition don't last. And I wonder if you are feeling any of that similar tension as a rabbi?
1: I find that I, in one form or another, I talk about this stuff a lot with my congregants, with friends, with colleagues. There's another beautiful teaching from the Talmud that says more than Israel has kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept Israel. And I always take that to mean that in order for Shabbat to have existed this long, there's got to be some sense of buy-in, of acknowledgement, and of embracing of the tradition of Shabbat. But once you say that and agree with that, then whatever comes out of that can be. So now I'm just riffing here and thinking out loud— Does somebody who says I work all week, but if I'm not hearing live music at a venue on Saturday with a cool cold beer in my hands with friends or my family, I am, that's how I observe Shabbat. Yeah. There are lots of people who would say are you out of your bleeping mind? Of course, that's not observing Shabbat. Yeah. I'm not one of them. I think that's observing Shabbat. So if I can just back up even further. Please. Without sounding too bonky here. So the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE. The second temple of the Israelites was destroyed. No more sacrifice it wasn't going to happen. And a bunch of Israelites, Jews, whatever the case may be, escaped and were hiding in the caves of Yavna. And they came out of these caves and they said, We have a choice to make. Because now that the temple has been destroyed, we can pack up and go home, or we can try something different. And out of that came prayer, hmm. which hadn't existed before. Our tradition, our tradition was all about sacrifice, animal mm-hmm. sacrifice, and all the different kinds for various reasons through the Kohanim, through the priests. And the, so there was a structure. Just read Leviticus. It's all there. But people said, obviously, that doesn't work anymore. And so we have a choice to make. And that choice allows you and I, honestly, I believe this, allows you and I to be having a conversation about tradition, not versus, but tradition and innovation. Yeah. Yeah. When you and I were texting about this, I know that one of the things that you had said is we'll talk a little bit about COVID stuff and we can get into it. But the truth of the matter is that when the world ended in one form or another in in March of 2020, a couple of months later was Pesach. And it became Passover. And it became very clear that getting together was not an option. Right. And so Jewish communities all around the world had a choice to make are we going to say we're not going to have Seder together? Because at that point, Zoom was still new and everyone was still reminding everyone else to unmute themselves and turn off your, turn your camera on. Just remember, <laughs> you're muted. you know, oh, Boys, you're, you're camera, muted. Oh, your camera, you're, you're muted. muted. You're still <laughs> muted. Oh yeah. No, you got to put a shirt on because yeah. your camera's on. Oops. We, and that still goes on, but Jewish communities all over the world said, we do have a tool here where we can be together. I'm using air quotes right now. Yeah. Even if it means that we break some of our traditions, like using electricity. And for many families, we did it. In my family, We had one of the largest seders we've ever had. We had Mm -hmm. family members from Israel, my wife's family. We had family members from Israel, family members from Chicago, from Massachusetts, from Florida, multiple time zones.
0: Yeah.
1: And we've still continued that. And so coming out of those caves and saying "It, it does not need to be either or allows us to think about ways of embracing both tradition and
0: innovation. Let's stay in that year because part of what I think is amazing about that year in your life was when you decided to become a rooftop rabbi and you created ways. And I guess that's getting to high holidays, right? So now what we originally were like, it's going to be three weeks. The kids are going to come home for three weeks. Now we're approaching September. What are we going to do? So we use I mean, a little yeah. bit about that yeah. and how you decided to market yourself as a boutique rabbi for the rooftops of manhattan
1: i remember just the wheels were turning that i would be on instagram and i would just be scrolling and seeing friends just posting selfies with them with their kids and then a couple of months later you would see a friends with their kids, and then in the background, other friends with other kids. So they had those 10 feet of distance between families, but they would still be posting pictures. and, And then fast forward another couple of months, and you'd see friends and family together in the same space, but everyone wearing masks. And so I started thinking about this idea that there's just this insistence of connection. Yeah there is this insistence of connection, but it's got to be safe and it's got to be controlled. And so I started reaching out to some friends and actually friends started reaching out to me saying, Matt, are you interested in doing anything? And I likewise reached out to them and say, friends, are you interested in doing anything? And one of the things that came of that was this idea of gathering in outdoor spaces. I called it the rooftop rabbi because it was a Catchy name, but to gather in outdoor spaces, mostly rooftops, some in Brooklyn, some in Manhattan, some in parks, some in backyards, where we would safely gather and have Shabbat services. I did stuff for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and it was this. It came out of this sense of wanting, wanting, and needing for people to be together for what felt like authentic reasons in order to connect beyond just Zoom or, yeah, beyond Zoom. So that was the impetus of the Rooftop Rabbi.
0: In what ways was that experience surprising to you?
1: I don't know if I was surprised as much as I was grateful and validated of what I always had always felt before the pandemic, that people really are looking for meaning in their lives, but it becomes very hard to try and find the time and space to do it.
0: Especially with your kids.
1: Especially with your kids And especially with how busy we all are. Yeah. So both of those, not both, just all of the factors that make our lives what they are can at the same time get in the way of finding meaning, but I would argue can add to the depths of finding meaning if we make that space.
0: Yeah. So now you're back in a traditional congregation now, right? In New Jersey?
1: I am, yeah. Both in person and remote.
0: So that, yeah, that leads to what I'm going to ask. Have you held on to some of the practices and lessons of COVID now that we're in this period of a lot of people wanting to pretend it never happened? (laughs) Let's just go back to to pre-COVID life. So what have you held on to?
1: I'll just keep the answer general in that I have made it very clear to the board that multi-platforms can never go away. Yeah. Even though we want it to be in person, even though we want, I'll use my terminology, Tuchis is in the seats.
0: That's right. Do
1: you understand Tuchis?
0: I do.
1: Okay. I just want to make sure.
0: My booty's in my seat right now, Matt. Ah,
1: good. Yes. Good, good. We want that, but we don't want that to prevent you from not joining us. And so the biggest general response to that is. Everything that we offer, except something like a blood drive, short of that, everything has to be multi-access.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we've held on to that, too. And I am finding I'm really feeling the tension between those who never really wanted to stop meeting in person in the first place. And they're annoyed that I am still offering that as an option. And I can hear murmurs about, I wish that people would come in person. But then what I hear from people at home is, it's so much easier because I don't have to get out of the house. I can hear you, I can see you. There's a real accessibility issue that's being met.
1: And I have kids at home, whether they are 12, two or two months, I can cook dinner and have right. you on in the background. Yeah. And we could sit down to have dinner together while right. we're at services.
0: That's right. And there's for us, there's also been this element of I'm in Washington State. I'm yes. in Kansas. That's right. I am in Senegal. There are That's people right. that we have who are our scattered congregation who are yeah. able to find their way periodically to us because of being online. Absolutely. But something definitely has changed forever. And I feel I think that's the third time now I'm talking about tension, pulling. I'm feeling pulled between paradigms. And I wonder if you're sensing some of that, not in your congregation so much as in Reformed Judaism overall. Are you feeling some of that tension between what has been and what either is or is emerging?
1: Yeah, we've read a lot, and it's been in the news a lot, about quiet quitting, and for sure, there seems to be a big rabbi shortage, and rabbis are feeling very burnt out and very disconnected from the work. I think in part because of being pulled in different directions. In no way am I dismissing or diminishing that. Though. That's real. That is real. However, with that being said, I think it's I think it is important for us to say if so-and-so can't come to services because it's raining outside and it's dark, how incredible is it that we have an option for her to join us yeah. over Zoom? I'm not sure where the pushback should be. Yeah. I'm not sure where the tension should be. And I'm certainly not sure where the under no circumstances right. should be. Yeah. I honestly, and maybe I'm naive, but I don't know... Why, when we are, and now I'll just zoom out a little bit, we have been a people, and I'm just focusing on on, on my people for the purposes of our conversation, we have been a people that has adapted for literally thousands yeah. of years. Why would we not want to continue to
0: adapt? Sure. I read this week that the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union's closing, and I that really hit me because I preached the closing of my seminary. I did the funeral for my seminary, and I know there are people who still want to believe that the closing of my seminary was a one-off, that it was fiscal irresponsibility, or it was a president who made a decision too impulsively. There are all kinds of excuses being made when really I know that it is a sign of the times and in a lot of ways is about the principles of supply and demand. I read that that the Cincinnati campus enrollment had dropped by 60 percent and that was part of why that was the one that's being slated to close. So I wonder if you can speak to any of that or if you feel like that is significant in any way? Is it a sign of the times?
1: I I don't, I'm not, I don't want to address the specifics of the Cincinnati closing other than to say the grief is real. The grieving is real. The loss is real. And so is the
0: math. Yeah.
1: Again, to just generalize the question that you answer into a general, the question that you ask into a general answer, whatever role you play on the board, whatever age you are, if you see your religious school numbers going down, it's simple math. Yeah. And so there has to be a way for us to be not only fiscally responsible but for us to be thinking about various ways to ensure sustainability. Whether we're talking about multiple campuses in the reform movement, whether we're talking about merging of campuses between movements, which is a discussion that's happening amongst colleagues and amongst leaders, thankfully i'm not a part of any of those discussions (laughs) that's right whether we're talking about the synagogue that i'm at now we rent space within the the, a conservative synagogues building Mm. there are mergers there are closures all over the country yep all of them are sad most of them are necessary
0: yeah I'm asking a lot of questions about all of those things right now and wondering how to guide a people through a process of recognizing that this part of our story may be ending, but it does not mean that our story cannot continue to be a blessing. In the same way of planting a tree, that the end of this part of the way we have practiced and gathered doesn't mean the end of practicing and gathering. You've talked about the insistence of connection and meaning making and the desire for those things has not gone away. If anything, it's I think it's big and hungry. People want to find ways to connect and make meaning. And some of our structures just aren't feeding that anymore. So what do we do? I'll give you.
1: Also, I'll give you. I like to give examples. I'll give you an example from when when I was at Temple Sinai in New Orleans. There's a beautiful historic organ that they use both in the sanctuary and in the chapel. And when I got there, I had a bunch of people telling me, don't get rid of the organ, never get rid of the organ. We need more organ, more cowbell, more organ, organ all the time. And we have other people saying, if I ever hear that organ again, And those were the same voices in the same building coming to the same place for often the same reasons. Yeah. It became clear that we had to try new things. Yeah. Admittedly, what I did was I did too much too soon at the very beginning. And I got Mm -hmm. rid of the organ, which I then, thankfully, voices that I trusted and respected encouraged me to bring back the organ not only at times but at various points throughout our service to have it and that was i'm glad i did that i'm glad that people shared their opinions with me and of course more than anything else as a rabbi i'm glad i listened but i think that if we're not making space for not shiny new objects because shiny new objects are cool but if we're not making space For new ways, for new people to connect. We're going to paint ourselves into a corner. And we're going to not only to just belabor the metaphor, we're going to turn around and face the wall of the corner. Yeah. And have absolutely no way of getting out.
0: That's right. I suspect the answer to what I'm about to ask is absolutely yes, there are many. (laughs) I'm wondering are there expressions of Judaism popping up around the country around the world that are expressing some sense of uncontained spirituality in the way I'm talking about on this podcast and then not but they're not inside brick and mortar walls they're maybe some of what you were experiencing during covid they're on rooftops they're in parks is there an emerging jewish practice in this country
1: Yes. The answer to that is yes. While synagogue numbers and membership are way down, like every religious institution, outlets for finding meaning Jewishly is significant and beautiful. There are organizations all throughout the country that are focused and dedicated to trying to bring meaning in new ways, that don't involve the brick and mortar institutions. Listen, in general, American society, without going into a political tangent here, but in general, American society, particularly our age group and younger, are so incredibly disenfranchised with institutions. Yeah. And in large part, I understand that. Because it does, because institutions in general are forcing themselves to ask the question, what exactly are we offering? Yeah. And so there are dozens, if not hundreds of hyper local and also national organizations that are committed to trying to find opportunities for Jews of all different sorts and all different identities to to try and connect and find me. And I and again, let me just say lastly, thank God.
0: Yeah. And I'm really wanting to be open to, okay, where do we set up the table? Do we set up the table under the tree in the park? I'm so much more interested in being part of the creative truth-telling gathering, of being part of the real-time meaning-making than I am what I have experienced. And I'm not picking on my congregation. I'm talking about the Christian institution I have served for 25 years There's just a lot of hand-wringing going on, and it feels at odds with what is life-giving for me, and I'm figuring some of that out. And as I do, I have this real—I don't know. Let's say I were to leave Christianity altogether. Let's say that there's some world in which I cease to be a pastor, I cease to identify as Christian, and I get a nose ring, and I call myself Sky, and I become just the yoga hippie lady who's a little bit Hindu, a little bit Buddhist— doing the white lady spiritual thing of America, people would just look at me and say, okay, that's what she is now. But if you were to cease being a rabbi and you were to cease identifying as one who observes, you never stop identifying as Jewish, whether you personally are practicing or not. I have a good friend, Bradley, who I grew up with in Mobile. He's probably listening to this. He grew up in a Jewish family and is not observant Jew, but has talked about in the political climate of the past several years. But boy, if they started rounding people up, I sure would be Jewish then. Yeah. So I wonder if you can play in some of that for a minute or just talk about what does it mean to have these institutional conversations happening and the numbers and the money and all of that, but also be part of a tradition that is so much more than a belief structure or arguing about the existence of God or what this verse means in first Corinthians.
1: Yeah, it's, I think this question arguably sets up without sounding too melodramatic, the next thousand years of Judaism, because what you're asking and what, Whether it's rabbis or friends or Jews in predominantly Jewish parts of the country versus not, what we're all asking is what does it mean to be a Jew today? Does it mean just one thing? Does it mean a million different things? Are there ways in which it feels necessary to at least have some sense of? being Jewish means this, versus being Jewish means not that, I think all of these questions are being asked in really healthy, important, and necessary ways. But to a certain extent, I think it connects to the very beginning of our discussion. If we decide that being Jewish means one thing, if we assume that being jewish means one thing or if we assume that being jewish means 10 things then we are completely alienating that 11th thing and with that being said again without taking us I- I- into a tangent i have no idea what if george santos were to do 23 uh, and me if he would find that he has jewish 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 stuff in his blood. I have no idea. So I'm not going to weigh in on that. But I do know that Judaism does take very seriously that to identify as Jewish means that you're doing something. What that something is not for me to say. Yeah, It's not for you to say. And it's not for anybody else to say. But Judaism takes very seriously that idea that being Jewish is actually more than just what you believe or what you don't believe.
0: Yeah. I quote you often because I remember you saying that you tell your congregations, I cannot be Jewish for you. I love that.
1: Thank you. And I also say, and feel free to quote me, is that one of the very cool things about all of the commandments that God has given us is that what God does not have is opposable thumbs. And by that, God can't do any of the commandments that we take to our heart. God cannot donate blood. God cannot have a coat drive. God cannot... Visit the sick, obviously, I'm interrupting myself. God can visit the sick spiritually, emotionally, mentally. So much of what we do in our lives, whether we're Jewish or not, about doing the sacred work of just being a human being yeah, cannot be done by anybody else but us. Yeah, And Judaism takes that idea very seriously, that it's not just enough to say, I am a proud Jew. Although I love it, but it's a lot more of, I am a proud Jew because I do. And hopefully it's more than just X, Y, and Z.
0: Yeah. And then also I have said to you that I envy the ish. Yes. I envy what I perceive from the outside looking in to be a flexibility. Brian McLaren would call it a generous orthodoxy there's a lot of room for disagreement and play. That's even built into the tradition,
1: for sure. And and
0: boy, I want some yeah. of that.
1: Yeah, no. It's it, listen. I although when you were describing this new sky, yeah, uh-huh. that yeah. that this sky that has the nose ring and. Does yoga and dances around and wears moo's and whatever it is. I do have
0: a number of moous, so I'm yeah, all
1: right. I'm not sure, and I say this, I'm not sure why Sky can't still be a Christian.
0: Yeah.
1: I honestly believe that. When you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, that sounds like plenty of Christians I know. Yeah. And so the ish part, the ish part I think is really important. And it goes back to something else you and I were talking about, the idea of assumptions and expectations of if we assume that being a Jew is this, then we are missing out on the opportunity of what else it could be. When you have one of those aha moments in your life, and I've talked to, I've preached about this, I've talked about this on the High Holy Days. Once you recognize the aha moment, you've stepped out of the moment. And so, once you are feeling completely in touch with whether it's God or yourself or meaning or relevance or the role in the universe, once you recognize that, you've actually stepped out of it. And now you're editorializing it. There's some worth to that. But again, if we put a definition to something in so many ways, we are defining what it's not by putting the borders of a definition into it.
0: Yeah. We've been chatting for about an hour. That was my aim. I know you're a very busy man with a very busy schedule and those four kids and all. But I wonder if we have a little bit of time for you to talk about some of the ways, let's call it the oneness, some of the ways you're tapping into what it means to notice. I don't know what the noticing is, but to notice Mm -hmm. it, to notice the connection. Where do you find those moments these days?
1: Yeah. Gosh. I don't know if the, to be honest, and now I think that I'm bringing in my cynicism, whether it's intentional or not. I think the noticing moments in my life happen much more often when I am not prepared for them or planning.
0: Oh, for, them. for sure. Yeah.
1: In other words, the likelihood of a noticing moment happening when I'm leading Shabbat services is slim to
0: none. Yeah.
1: But the chance of me having a noticing moment when I'm reading in Torah study, the Torah portion for the umpteenth time, and somebody asks a question that allows me to think of a verse in a way that I truly have not.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or just yesterday, coming back from rock climbing, one of my daughters asked me, um, Abba, how do you know if a friend can tell that you're upset with them? It was such an innocuous question. Obviously, she's thinking about stuff with a friend. But the question itself allows she and I or she and me to enter into a space of just the picking up of cues from people that are important to you. These are noticing moments for yeah. me, and I'm not sure if that answers your question entirely. But, but yeah,
0: I I think part of what I find so magical about noticing moments—we're going to call it that now—it of course they can't be contrived or predicted. That's it is about your own state being prepared for receiving them, be, being able to notice. The most recent one for me that feels really big, and it is so small, Nathan and I were walking the dog the other day, and we live out at the lakefront, so we're just against the levee, but not quite at the lake, and these two birds fly over that I've never seen before. And clearly they're the same type of bird, but they they fly like ducks, but they're a little bit bigger. So they maybe they're small geese. And so we just stopped in total silence watching these brown and white with kind of orange beets, orange bills, birds fly over and thinking we'll never we'll never know what they were. That was so cool. So we walk, we talk, the moment passes, we get home and they're sitting on the roof of the house next door. To the path that we're walking to get to our house. They're just sitting there. We're like, it's the ducks. They're back. We're there again. So we stop and we're staring at them and we take a picture of them. And I don't know what kind of ducks they were, but I've never seen them before. And they were so cool. And I don't know, Matt, there was something about that. Do
1: you remember the scene? Do you remember the scene in American Beauty? Of the, the, I don't remember any of the characters, but the filmmaker that's filming the bag twirling in the wind. I don't Do you know that scene. Just look that scene up. That's what I was thinking about. Where he's so affected by the beauty of this bag swirling around in the wind. It's like a bag in a parking lot, and he's just watching this bag, and he's so affected by the beauty of it. I remember, not to just name-drop, but I remember Yumi and O'Teal, a buddy of yours, going to lunch one day, and because I'm so into his music and the dead. And I remember talking to him at lunch, asking if he can still get those moments of just utter joy of the music that he and these incredible musicians are creating for literally tens of thousands of people. And it was such a cool moment because one of the things that he said, well, I don't know if he remembers this or if he would agree with it now, but he mentioned that he was as affected by the music that he was creating in the moment as he would occasionally be affected by the crowd yeah. that he could feel being affected yeah. And just like duality of lots of different parts. Yeah. Am I suggesting that you and Nathan connected to the ducks and the ducks were like, Oh, let's go check out these people and sit on their front porch and wait for them to come home. Cause they look pretty interesting. That's right. I don't know. That's a kind of a cool idea.
0: They're noticing um, us as we're noticing them.
1: Yes, exactly. But I do think that. This idea of noticing, and why not go back to the text, because this is what we do for a living. There are so many. It's real. There are so many burning bushes in the world. There are so many opportunities to be overwhelmed with how how necessary we are in the world and how much of an impact we can make in the world, and at the same time, how incredibly necessary the world is for us. That is, I I do not say that to be overwhelmed, but I say that to mean there's so much opportunities to feel meaning if we want it and to feel connected if we want it.
0: I feel like that's a good landing spot right there. Letting you have the last word there. There's so many opportunities if you want it.
1: Very nice.
0: Yeah, this is so good. It was. As my colleague, Minka Sprague, who passed away during COVID, not from COVID, but during COVID, as she would say, to be continued. Always. Ever said goodbye. Always to be continued. And so we'll pick up next time. And you have spoken, O'Teal into the room. He was supposed to do an episode this season, but we didn't get together before he started touring. Yeah. So those early intros when I mentioned Elves, that was for O'Teal. And now we've nice. named him. So season two, Oteal Burbridge and the Elves will be here.
1: I'll join you for that one.
0: Okay, that sounds great.
1: Bye.
0: Bye, Matt. Thank you.